ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Way back in the 1990s, I went on a tour to an isolated gold mining town that's in the middle of the great sandy desert in WA. And this was summer. And in that time, the desert heat was getting up to beyond 50 degrees Celsius. And so on weekends, some of the miners there would use a four-wheel drive to launch themselves into the air on hang gliders. And then they'd spend all day riding the powerful thermal air currents coming off the desert, enjoying the cool air way up in the sky. Benjamin Jordan is with me today. Benjamin is a documentary filmmaker who's taken that idea much, much, much further to traverse the North American continent, flying in a paraglider all the way from Mexico to Canada, looking down at the spectacular landscape below. In the film footage of his trip, you can see Benjamin suspended from his paraglider, climbing in what looks like a sleeping bag, and it looks like he's safe and warm in a bed. And it's like a dream. The idea to do this epic trip across North America came to Benjamin like a gift from the gods after an utterly surreal encounter in the sky above Mexico. And Mexico is where I'm talking to him today. Hi, Benjamin. Hey, Richard. Wow, that sounds, you made it sound so exciting. Well, man, it is. <laughs> I mean, I was envying those people as I was watching them. I wondered if I could ever summon the courage to do that, that kind of a thing. What were you doing in your life when the thought came to you, yeah, maybe I want to take up paragliding? Well, you know, uh, funny question. I, I was at a real sort of rock bottom, I, I felt, uh, in my commercial photography career in uh, the freezing cold in Toronto, Canada. And uh, I'd just been evicted from my apartment and um, it was crashing on my, my cousin's couch. And a paraglider came on the television and, you know, I was just in this kind of funky state. And I remember I just heard my brain say, you can't do that. And it struck up a bit of an argument with myself, really. I'm like, what do you mean I can't do that? Why can't I do that? And I made this long list of reasons. I'm too fat, you know, cost too much, too dangerous, need a car, can't do that in Canada, you know, and on and on. And somehow I, I, I realized that I was this expert in why it was I couldn't do this thing that I didn't know anything about. And so anyway, I went online and I, I searched all of these and I found that each of these points was, was wrong, dead wrong, in fact. And ultimately realized that I was just afraid. And, and it wasn't upsetting to me that I was afraid. Being afraid is totally fine. But what was upsetting to me was the lack of integrity that I had, that I was essentially lying to myself so that I didn't have to tell myself that I was afraid, so not to face that truth. And so as a sort of a punishment, I went online I found where people could paraglide at that time of year. It was November, so it happened to be New Zealand, Australia. And I signed up the most affordable course I could find, which uh, was based out of Auckland. And literally three days later, I was on a flight to Auckland. And five days later, I was taking my first steps off of a cliff. A hang glider looks like a big paper plane. You know, it's, it's, it's like a dart or something. But a paraglider looks really different. It's like a big, gigantic plastic banana leaf or something like that. What is paragliding? What, how, do you, how, how should we conceive of the act of paragliding, Benjamin? Sure. Well, it, it, you know, it's not a lot different than a hang glider. It just has a, a lot less performance, but for the advantage of being able to fold it up into a little backpack. So picture a parachute, but like you said, kind of like a giant banana, it's a high performance parachute that's not designed to be opened after you jump out of a plane. Instead, it's designed to be inflated like a child's kite, uh, you know, on a windy day. And then you run with it. And instead of going down, given the right conditions, you can go up. You say you fit it into a backpack. It must be so diaphanous and thin and almost flimsy in order to be able to stuff it into a backpack. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's made out of, you know, ultra durable, but super lightweight, uh, sort of high tech nylon. You know, my paraglider, which is not the lightest paraglider out there, weighs only four and a half kilograms. And, you know, with that paraglider, I can climb a mountain, you know, maybe spend an hour or two doing that. And then I can launch into the sky. And then, you know, given the right conditions, I can fly upwards of two vertical kilometers, you know, in, in a matter of minutes. 
My God, two vertical kilometres. That's extraordinary. And how do you then go forward? How do you actually have forward motion? So the paraglider is constantly flying forward at a pretty much a static speed. So when you get into the column of air, you turn circles and you're flying forward in a circle. So you're not really going anywhere with respect to the planet, but you're going up. And then once you, let's say, gain that two you know, 2,000 meters, you can easily turn that into 14 kilometers to maybe 20 kilometers of lateral travel before you end up back down at the same elevation where you started in that climb where you climbed 2,000 meters. And you'll fly that at your 35 to 45 kilometers an hour. And you just have to consider what the wind is. And, you know, there's an equation for that. If you've got 10 kilometers an hour of headwind, then you're going to fly at 25 to 35, right? If you've got a crosswind, then that's a more complex equation. But you're kind of always flying forward and you're just looking for different ways to go up. And how good is the steering with this sort of thing? Really, really good, actually. Uh, Because you're not traveling too fast, you can really turn it on a dime. You have left and right brake toggles. You slow the right side down and it turns to the right. You slow the left side down and it turns to the left. You can actually not use toggles at all if you want. And you can just uh, give subtle inputs with leaning. And that can actually be very effective, too. I prefer to do both at the same time. I've always thought of people going hang gliding as they fly through the air like Superman, but with, you know, a gigantic kite on their back. But seeing the footage of you and your paraglider flying under your sort of curved parachute, you seem to be, what I can gather, you seem to be sort of all wrapped up, all nice and cosy inside a sleeping bag in a kind of reclining position. It's like you're sitting up in bed and the whole thing reminds me of like however many dreams I've ever had of flight. It just seems so cosy and dreamlike and delightful. Is that how it feels at the time? It kind of does. You, you, you can't quite see the shape of, of my body, the position of my body in, in that. They call it a pod. It's just a neoprene sleeve that covers your, your lower half of your body. It helps with aerodynamics and it keeps you a little bit warmer, as you said. But, uh, you know, it, it can be very comfortable at times because you can really recline and it's kind of like a luge. But also kind of like a luge would be, if you can imagine, there can be quite an abdominal workout at times, depending on what's going on. And if you're trying to sit more upright, I tend to sit upright when I get nervous. It's like I have to force myself to recline. If I do that a lot one day, I, I certainly feel some soreness in my abdominals <laughs> up there. Is um, being a paraglider a kind of a pilot? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. You're not responsible for 500 lives behind you, but you're certainly responsible for your life. Um, you know, the, the choices that you make are of huge consequence. It's important to constantly be assessing risk and to constantly have, you know, not just a plan, but a plan B and a plan C as well. So uh, it involves quite a bit of responsibility, despite how, how Zen it feels, the experience of paragliding. So it's not, it's not as cruisy as it looks <laughs> from my point of view. In other words, I suppose your your brain's on fire while you're flying through the air like that. You apart from the 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 wind in your face and the kind of glory and and awe and terror of being that far off the ground uh, and all the decisions you've got to make about navigation and all that. I, I don't suppose it's terribly relaxing. I often am, am asked, aren't you afraid? That looks great. I would totally do that, but I'm, I'm too frightened of, I'm afraid of heights or, you know, aren't you afraid of what you're doing? Okay, so it's important that I say, I'm afraid of heights. And yes, I am afraid of what it is that I'm doing. And yes, when I'm sitting here right now on the phone with you talking about paragliding and I think about it, I try to conceptualize it, I get, I, I feel frightened. But when I'm participating in paragliding, I'm so overwhelmed by the moment of what it is that I'm actually doing. I'm so deeply, deeply invested in it that I find there's literally no room left in my brain to process feelings of fear. So when you're getting ready to launch yourself, what do you take with you when you climb up that mountain that you're going to leap off? Well, so most pilots would just carry their paraglider, their harness, you know, a reserve parachute, maybe a little snack, some water, um, maybe a phone. I, on the other hand, practice, let's just call it fly camping. And so I'm carrying food for 14 days, uh, water for several days, photo documentary equipment, uh, my tent, sleeping bag, camp stove, gas for that stove, a number of communication devices in case I get myself into a pickle. So what I carry up on a, you know, on a, a casual day might weigh, let's say, 15 kilograms. What I carry up when I'm on expedition, maybe 35 kilograms. And you're carrying all that in a backpack? 
Yeah, definitely. That backpack's definitely seen better days. I, I have to repair it a lot because I'm I've overloaded it, you know, by by probably 10 kgs. So it hurts at the start of the expedition, and by the end of it, it just kind of feels like it's you know an appendage. Still, I love the freedom of all that. When you're getting ready to leap off and launch yourself, is it better to launch from a hill or just to leap off a cliff, Ben? Oh, uh, definitely a hill. Uh, definitely a hill. Uh, the, the aerodynamics of a cliff are horrible. Uh, you have air that will rush up the face of it and then it will curl uh, at that 90 degree junction, say, where it comes to the flat top. And that, that right there is turbulence, the kind of stuff that you don't like when you know, you're know you in an airplane. And turbulence can be fatal for a paraglider because turbulent air can cause the, the fabric wing to collapse. And if your wing collapses, then you're just falling. When you have a hill, now you have air moving evenly up the hill and it's very predictable and you can fly out into it with, you know, with confidence, not, not concerned about turbulence. How do you prepare yourself to launch? What do you need to do? Well, um, you got to pack your harness with whatever you're going to, you know, take for your day. So that could be as little as water and that could be as much as, you know, all of my camping gear and get that on. Uh, You generally bundle up with a bunch of winter clothes because things get pretty cold depending on how high you can get. And then you clip into your paraglider and you do that as fast as you can usually because all of a sudden you're overheating and and you don't want to sweat through those clothes. And there's a couple points where you, you clip your harness together and then a couple more where you clip that harness into the glider and then you're good to go. You just, uh, you know, give a little tug on the, the, the leading lines of the kite and um, you control the rate of rise when it comes up by pulling on the trailing lines of the kite. And as soon as it's above your head, basically in the 12 o'clock position, you turn you don't have to run immediately. You kind of just play with it a little bit. And then as soon as you feel comfortable taking off, you take a few steps. And usually by that time, you're already airborne. How does it feel when your feet leave the ground? I wish I could describe it with words. I wish I could describe it with words. I wish I could put it in a bottle and share that with the world because it is a undescribable feeling. Um, it is probably the only feeling that I maybe other than love that I can't really describe and it is kind of like, ah, yes, that thing. It feels like I'm doing it for the first time every single time. And uh, I love it. Do you feel like you're in control or are you sort of happily surrendering yourself? I almost always feel like I'm in control. You know, there's the rare occasion when I might not have considered uh, turbulence that might be coming off of a feature, uh, either in flight or close to launch or or what what have you. And I realized that, okay, you know, I'm going to be flying through some dynamic stuff right now. I I hope that this goes okay. But that's extraordinarily rare. Let's say less than 1% of the time. Most of the time, I feel like I know exactly what I'm doing. Even when I sometimes realize that I didn't know what it was that I was doing. I feel that way. So having left the ground, the thermal air currents then, you know, whisk you right up into the sky, up to one to 200 metres, as you you were saying. Do you get that kind of feeling like you do it in in an amusement park? Is that that the kind of feeling you feel your stomach sort of (laughs) leaving you temporarily and then returning to you? Is there that part? Is that part of the thrill of it? Well, maybe. First, I should say that you don't immediately get whisked. You have to find where that thermal is. And when you're a beginner paraglider pilot, you know, like I did, you'll spend a a few years flying pretty much from the top to the bottom, not being able to connect to those uh, invisible air currents because it takes experience. But once you find one and you have enough experience to find one and stay in one, then it might be like an amusement park, but I would say it'd probably be like an amusement park for someone who works at an amusement park because you're so used to it. The The feeling that you get, you know, usually a thermal, you know, won't be stronger than five meters per second. Um, it can be up to 10, 12 meters per second. Um, a lot of times I'm in weaker lift, one or two meters per second. And so it doesn't really give you that feeling of being on a roller coaster. In fact, if you feel like you're on a roller coaster, you probably shouldn't be flying on that day. I've been in light aircraft, which is trying to land itself in the desert, and it, it is like feeling like bobbing around as it hits the thermal air currents. You feel like you're bobbing around like a cork in the ocean. You're, you're talking as though you can see the 
the thermal air currents? Because they, they're completely invisible to me looking out the window. How do you know how to move towards one? What, what is the observation involved in that, Ben? Uh, first of all, on the ground, there's lots of things that you can see that would be potential triggers. You know, an easy example would be if there was like a rocky bump somewhere amidst, you know, a bunch of trees, maybe a, a landslide that was obviously going to heat up faster in, in its exposure to the sun than the trees around it. If I were to be looking for a thermal and I saw that, I would probably head there and then sort of search on all sides of that and probably, you know, if, if I timed it right, uh, I would get lucky and I would be able to take that as my trigger and then just connect to more thermals as I go up into the sky. It's almost like an upside down tree. If you, if you can imagine you connect to a branch and you move up and then you connect to a bigger branch because now two thermals have connected and then eventually you're in the trunk and the trunk will go all the way up to the clouds. And then the clouds are the other indicator. Um, you don't always have clouds. It depends on a number of environmental factors. But if you do have clouds, you can use the clouds as indicators because those are literally the tops of the big thermals. So if you're really high up, it's super handy to use the clouds. Or if you're flying in flat land where there's just farms and not a lot of really distinct features. If you look at the clouds, basically put yourself underneath them. Odds are you're going to find a really nice climb and that climb is going to take you all the way up to the bottom of that cloud. Do you sometimes end up inside the clouds? You can very easily end up inside the clouds. It's not recommended. And it's, in fact, it's illegal in, in many countries um, because us paragliders are supposed to fly by what they call visual flight rules. And when you're in a cloud because you can't see, you have to use instruments. But yes, you can because the thermals actually stop at the top of the cloud, not at the bottom of the cloud. Can you get sucked into a cloud? Yes, you can get sucked into a cloud. And in, in fact, uh, you know, many Australians may be familiar with the story. I believe her name was Ava. She may have been German, but she was in uh, Manila, Australia, um, a famous paragliding site uh, for the World Cup of paragliding uh, many years ago. Uh, it was a year after I learned, so probably 2005 or six, And she was flying in the competition. They called the competition because uh, it was the sky was overdeveloping. It was becoming too thermic, too many clouds. It's going to storm. They call the competition off. Everyone hears it over the radio. They're supposed to land, but it's their choice, obviously, because they are the pilots in command. And her and another gentleman, I believe from China, chose to continue flying the course for that day anyway. And uh, both of them ended up getting sucked into a cloud and going up to maybe as high as 10,000 meters. Um, freezing, and she was the only one of the pair to survive. They made a documentary about her. Yeah, I remember that documentary now. That was on about five years ago or something like that. She sort of passed out when she was up in the clouds or something. She got super cold, and it's almost, it seems miraculous that she was able to survive that experience. It is. That, that's, that's not uh, most people's fate when, when that happens. Essentially, clouds build because thermals you know, are being released from, from the earth. So it is, you know, in its early stages, it is the earth that is effectively building the cloud. But uh, once a cloud gets so big, by its own very design, it starts to, uh, we call it cloud suck, uh, essentially inhale air so that it can gain more and more and more moisture so it can become heavier and denser so that it can rain. And uh, you don't want to be on the cloud suck part of, you know, of a, of a cloud development because, um, I, you know, I've been there myself in, in my rookie days and I also was lucky to get away unscathed. But it is, you know, first raining and then snowing and hailing and blowing every which way. It is, you know, complete with Wizard of Oz experience up there. <laughs> and, it's, and it's cold. Old, and your paraglider is freezing and your lines start to freeze, you know, your, your body freezes and you don't know where you are. You don't know what direction you're going and you don't know how long it's going to be before you end up getting a break and it spits you out somewhere on the side of it. But, you know, you could be 6,000 meters, 7,000 meters above sea level at that point. And that's well into the hypoxic zone. So not recommended. Good God, it could be like stinking hot on the ground and suddenly you're in Antarctica in the sky and uh, with all the concomitant dangers that go with that. That's amazing that to think you can have all that up in the sky. It's so different from what's happening below. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, Benjamin, I'm speaking to you now. You're in somewhere in central Mexico and there's a place there called, I hope I pronounced this right, Vala de Bravo. What is it that would keep drawing you to that place? 
So yeah, Valle de Bravo is a world famous uh, paragliding destination. Uh, basically, in the months of November, December, January, and and even into February and March, um, but definitely those first three, um, you get pilots from all around the world that come to stay there because you know it's affordable, great culture, and the paragliding conditions above all else. Uh, rarely will you find anywhere in the world where you, you you can actually go and you know stay for a month and paraglide every single day of that month because the conditions are so consistent. But this is one of those places uh, during those three months, and so I you know sort of followed the the crowd and uh, ended up down in Valle de Bravo for the first time in my life back in in 2015. It was. And, uh, you know, loved the conditions and was learning so much, you know, being able to fly so, you know, so many hours every day. So in January 2015, you had that transformative experience while you were flying there on that day. Tell me what happened on that day. Well, um, you know, I've been there for a couple weeks and I was just kind of starting to get the feel of the place, venturing out further. You know, my first flight might have been 10 kilometers, you know, my second one, 20, third one, 30, on and on. And so I was probably up to, you know, having 80, 85 kilometer flights. And I'm coming back from this uh, volcano area this one day and the whole area clouds out. And because of that, there's no more sun and there's no more thermals. And so I end up bombing out, as they say. It just means landing where you didn't intend to land, uh, basically not back at your hotel. So I'm landing somewhere in a meadow at about 3,000 meters above sea level and packing my, my paraglider up thinking, you know, how am I going to get back to, you know, to Valle de Bravo? How am I going get to a, get a ride from here? And all of a sudden I look up and I realize that there's all these butterflies around me and it's crazy because, you know, I, I mean, I, I love nature as much as the next person, but, you know, I, I had this real uh, moment of feeling like I was super connected to something and I, and I couldn't quite pinpoint what. Were they alive or dead, these butterflies? Well, these butterflies, while I was packing up, were alive and they were flying around just kind of haphazardly in this field. I mean, uh, it's hard to describe a volume of butterflies. This wasn't an insane amount of butterflies, not yet. But it was more than I'd seen uh, since I'd got to Mexico. It was more than I would see typically, you know, traveling around Canada or the United States. And so I noticed that a lot of them were kind of coming and going from this forest. And so once I packed up my paraglider, I just walked over to the forest and I saw that there was all these butterflies flying around this forest. And I thought, that's kind of crazy. And so I just started meandering along this trail into the forest and Eventually, I got to this area where, you know, I looked down and I saw on the ground, I saw all these butterflies were dead. There was, uh, you know, probably anywhere between 100 and 200 butterflies at my feet on the trail and then in the, the shrubs beside me. And I was kind of overwhelmed by this feeling of sadness for for these, you know, little beings. And I recognized them from when I was a kid up in Canada. I grew up in, in Toronto uh, near the Great Lakes region there. And uh, the monarch butterflies, you know, they're, they're abundant up there. Can I just go back a bit, uh, Benjamin? When you were flying, did, were you encountering those, uh, the cloud of butterflies in the sky? Is that right? Yeah, actually, when I was when I was coming back from the when I was coming back from the volcano and I was searching over this one particular mountain, I did notice that there were some butterflies uh, flying with me, and and all I thought at that point was, you know, this is great because when when you see butterflies, you can see what the air is doing, and so in in this case, the butterflies, you know, were going were starting to go up, so I flew towards them, and I was in a small climb with those butterflies, but. Ultimately, it wasn't enough, so I was forced to land in that in that field nearby, where I discovered a whole bunch more. Now I'm walking through the forest, and they're dead on the ground. And I'm thinking to myself, "Oh no, this isn't a good thing. This is not a good thing." And I'm kind of overwhelmed by this feeling of sadness. And then I looked up, and I couldn't believe what I saw. The trees looked like they were growing some sort of a fungus. Um, the branches were weighed down by this fungus that was all up all of the trunks of the trees. And I kept looking at it and I realized what I was looking at was not, you know, a hundred, not 200, but literally millions of millions of butterflies stuck to these trees 
coating the trunk to the point that you literally can't see the trunk of the tree, coating the branches to the point that you literally can't see the branches, the leaves, and so many on these branches that the branches are literally being weighed down by the weight of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of these butterflies. And in this moment, it's understandable that I, I, I didn't at first understand that they were butterflies because there's so many of them. I'd never seen anything like this. And all of their wings were closed all up against each other. And they just look brown in this kind of shaded out environment. But then all of a sudden, the sun came through. The sun came through the cloud that would, had kind of you know shaded out that area and caused me to have to land there. And when the sun came out, all of a sudden, all around me, these butterflies that were, you know, on these trunks and on these branches started to open their wings and fly all around, seemingly aimlessly. And now I'm in the middle of like a tornado of butterflies and the sound that I could hear of traffic and wind rustling through the trees, I couldn't hear anything. All I could hear was the beating of millions and millions of butterfly wings all around me. And I was just absolutely floored by the experience. is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So Benjamin, you said as you, you were walking around this forest, the sun came out. And these butterflies, these millions and millions of butterflies, monarch butterflies in this forest, launched themselves and were fluttering all around you. And the noise was huge, this roar of butterflies. There's so much in this that just doesn't seem to compute. The first thing is like you're meeting butterflies way up in the sky. I never thought they sort of got anything more than, you know, maybe about 10 meters off the ground. And that they assembled in, in, in such extraordinary numbers. What were you doing while you were watching these millions of butterflies cavorting all around you? Um, drooling, <laughs> trying to pick up my chin off the ground, maybe trying not to inhale any butterflies because I couldn't close my mouth. You know, just kind of looking around. I uh, Honestly, I, I, I feel like it was this one little moment when the universe allowed me to feel like a two-year-old or a one-year-old seeing something for the very, very, very first time that was just, you know, blowing my mind. Maybe like it would be for someone that showed up in Times Square or something like that, you know, for the first time, having only lived in a cave their entire life. So that's how I felt. And um, I... You know, I, I mean, I, I, I spent some time there, probably about two hours in all, sort of documenting what it what it was that I was seeing because I, I thought, you know, I need to let the world know about this. This is, you know, an, an incredible thing. Yeah, no one, no one's going to believe it. So I did that, and I discovered that that people people did know about it. In, in fact, people traveled very far to come and, and witness this phenomenon. And so there's a lot of information out there for me to to, to uh, take in. You know, in between my my many repeated visits to this butterfly sanctuary, Benjamin, this is all very Wizard of Oz. I mean, this is you know you're blown out of wherever you're from, and you sort of <laughs> drop out of the sky into this strange land, surrounded by all this insane color and surreal madness of of, of all these butterflies. What I have to ask, why? What, what were all those? What did you find out about why there were all these millions and millions of butterflies congregating in central Mexico? Well, as it turns out, monarch butterflies are very, very picky about uh, climate, um, you know, tree type, um, you know, the food that they can eat. Uh, they're, they're very, very picky eaters and they, you know, really like to, you know, live in the conditions that they like to live in. And so, uh, one of the things that I remarked when I was, you know, down in Mexico in that Sierra Madre mountainous region uh, near Mexico City was that it kind of felt like I was in Canada. Like the air was crisp. You know, there's lots of these pine trees. It just kind of felt like British Columbia where, where I currently live. And so I realized that these butterflies, they weren't 
necessarily Mexican butterflies, depending on how you look at it. These butterflies had actually flown all the way from where I grew up in Canada, all the way down to Mexico, not just to Mexico, but to this very specific mountain, no bigger than, let's say, a playground at a, at a, at a children's school. And they had found their way all the way there they had used these thermals, which we spoke about at the top of the program, to get there because flapping, you could imagine, for you know, 3,000, 4,000 miles would be, you know, I mean, they would die. They wouldn't make it. But the craziest thing, the craziest thing, and this is the most important thing of all, is that they make it there from a band of forest about 3,000 kilometers wide all the way to this finite location that is only one square kilometer in size. And for the record, there are maybe five or six of these one square kilometer mountaintops, but they're all at the exact same elevation. They're all in the exact same region. And they do this without a compass, without a map, without any of these kinds of things. And the craziest part, as if that wasn't enough, they have never been there before. Their parents have never been there before. Their parents have never been there before. It was their parents that overwintered on those exact same trees, those exact same fir trees, one winter earlier. So across four generations, they were able to migrate all the way back to Canada in the springtime, spend the summer there, breed, and then fly all the way back over four generations to a pinpoint on a map. And that blew my mind because I uh, have completely underestimated the wisdom of the butterfly. When I think of a butterfly, I think of, you know, something with the, the piloting skills of a post-it note. <laughs> I don't think of something with this higher power, something with powers that I can't even really describe because by contrast, I am so dumb. I am so powerless. And so I thought to myself, wait a second. If these guys have this special power that they can communicate over four generations, the exact location that they need to get to that is 3,000 miles away, a total of 7,000 miles return trip, then everything, everything, not just butterflies, must have some special quality, whether it's you know a kangaroo or a human. So if I have a special quality, what's that? And I've become completely obsessed with this question. What is it that we do that is as grand as what the monarchs do? And so I've been obsessing over this for a very, very long time. And that kind of segues into the, you know, the, the next chapter of this story. Benjamin, this is quietly blowing my mind as well. I think of a butterfly as this delightful diaphanous thing that sort of floats around the garden. Are you telling me that monarch butterflies fly not en masse, but they sort of launch themselves individually from bazillions of points across the, the length and width of Canada and all converge in Mexico. But but along the way, what they what do they make pit stops and they stop and they mate and they breed, they have offspring and and they die and then their their children pick up the pick up the next stage of the journey. Is that what you're saying to me? Yes. So on, on the way up, they make, on the way from Mexico to Canada, they, they procreate three times. And on the way down, they call it the super species. See, these other ones only live for a month each. The ones that come all the way down, they were born in Canada. They live for nine months. They make the whole trip down, overwinter there, and then they start the journey north. Now, they make pit stops, absolutely. They make pit stops. They, some of them have to fly across Great Lakes, like Lake Superior, which I don't know exactly how wide it is, but when you look across it, you can't see the other side. It's huge. Monarch butterflies are, are famous for landing on boats that are crossing that waterway and hitching a ride because it's just so far to go or they need you know, to catch their breaths, you know, so to speak, before continuing across that huge body of water. When they're migrating north, they procreate and they can only land in areas where there's this plant milkweed, uh, which varies from region to region because that is the only food that their caterpillars can eat. Uh, it's, it's, it's like blowing my mind trying to reconcile the fact that something so sweet and beautiful and delicate and that lives for such a short time 
can conduct such an epic journey to such a specific location. What do we know about how they navigate? That's the one thing that I couldn't really figure out. And what I did find out is that how they do it exactly is still a mystery to the great minds of science to this very day. There's a lot of ideas, but they don't all connect. They've even taken a monarch butterfly that they were that they track by putting tiny little stickers with numbers on their wings to see how they do this. And they took a, a butterfly from somewhere in the central United States that was flying down south, because that's all they do at that time of year in the fall. And they took it out to like Florida, out to the east coast of Canada to see if it would make it. It made it. The butterflies that they moved, you know, a thousand miles off their course to the east adjusted their trajectory so that they could make it into the funnel and get to these exact mountaintops that they need to make it to to survive. Pretty crazy, hey? Andrew, and it's like, it's like nature said to you, oh yeah, you're zooming around up there so you can see interesting stuff. I'll show you something interesting. <laughs> yeah. Does it feel like a gift of a kind? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, I, uh, when I, uh, I I was going through some heavy stuff uh, at the time back in 2015 when I had uh, had discovered them and uh, was definitely looking for some, you know, meaning in my life and, and some some answers to some sort of questions that I didn't re- even really know how to put into words. But when I found them, I felt so inspired by this. I don't know how to describe it. Just, I guess, just the overwhelming, humbling nature of it to realize that this thing that I felt was so small was actually so great. And to realize that, therefore, everything that I think, every thought that I have, even maybe the depressed thoughts that I have, I can actually just turn them all on their head because I know nothing of this world. And that if I want to know something, Maybe I should look to the corners that I had been ignoring my whole life. Maybe I should look to the monarch butterfly for some of these answers. There were very obviously parallels to the long journey and the flight of the monarch butterfly. And what you were doing, what you're doing, flying, riding the air currents like they are. Is, is, is it this that inspired you to, to attempt this crossing of North America by paraglider? Yeah, only this phenomenon could have provoked me to do something so outrageous as try to fly a paraglider from Mexico to Canada. Essentially, I, you know, racked my brain, tried to learn as much as I could about them. And at the end of the day, was still unsatisfied as to being able to answer that one question, which is, you know, what wisdom do these butterflies have that we can benefit from? What have they learned in order to be able to do something that is absolutely so so great. And I decided that the only way that I was gonna ever be able to find out would be to try and endure their journey uh, on my own. And so that is why um, I and my girlfriend who followed me along uh, and documented my journey set out a little uh, less than one year ago it was and tried to become the first people to fly by paraglider all the way across the United States. Did you tell anyone other than Lindsay what you were planning? No, only the sponsors, only the expedition sponsors. I've got this thing where if I tell people that I'm going to do something, then I feel this overwhelming pressure to do it. And so because I wanted to make sure that every time I you know, got to the top of a mountain and, and hucked myself off, that I was doing it because it was something that I really wanted to do. I didn't tell anyone so that there wouldn't be any uh, additional pressure there. So you decided the route you were going to take was going to fly you over Arizona, then Utah, Idaho, Montana. Are you following the Rockies there rather than the Great Plains? Is, it, is, is, is that the deliberate intent for you to follow that, uh, that chain of mountains and hills uh, across the Western United States? Yeah, absolutely. The the butterflies, they do follow the plains. They go through what's called the corn belt because this is where most of the milkweed is found in the United States. I, on the other hand, I'm not able to just flap my wings, uh, so to speak. I have to, to climb to the top of a mountain and inflate it. And so I was limited to sticking to mountainous terrain. So I was probably about a thousand miles, let's say, west for the most part of their trajectory, but still making the same distance from uh, Mexico to Canada. Tell me about the launch, day one, setting up on this trip. 
<laughs> ah, I didn't think I could do it, Richard. I, I, I like to throw my hat over the wall. I like to push myself to do things that I don't think that I can do. And most of the time I'm, I'm, I'm successful, knock on wood. But this thing, I just thought, you know, this is, this is too big. You know, in the past, I'd done trips that were 1,000 kilometers, 1,200 kilometers. These really did me in. And I was really proud of myself for having completed them. This was going to be minimum 2,800 kilometers, you know, almost three times the kind of journey that I usually take on. And it's not so much that it was so long and it was going to take so long to do, but it was also that there's a limited paragliding season. There's a limited time frame that inside of which you can do something like this, you know, in the United States. And so I was really going to push it to its absolute limit. So you arrived, what, just below the border of Arizona, got yourself set up and... Have you got a tent in there, in your backpack as well as a paraglider as you're traveling and doing all this? I've got everything you need for a two-week camping trip in the back of my glider because I don't know where it is that I'm going to land. I might land three days from civilization, so I need to have enough food, enough water, all that stuff to be able to survive. But that moment, that moment, that, that first launch, I remember just thinking like, okay, this is crazy. If I start this thing that I don't know I can finish... I know I'm not going to let myself stop until it's done. And so I kind of feared for myself a little bit and feeling like, uh, I don't know, this, you know, there's probably a reason that no one's ever done this before. So you launch yourself off a hill somewhere below the US border. And after having trudged all the way up the hill with all that gear, suddenly you're flying, you're flying and you're going day after day, you're traversing these, these distances, stopping and camping. What sort of landscapes were you flying over? Oh, man. You know, I, uh, one of the things that was really great uh, for me about this journey was that I'd never flown in any of these regions before. I mean, there's so much desert in the United States. Uh, it's, it's not like what we've got up in Canada. And so, you know, down in Utah, there's these cactus. They call them saguaro. They're taller than telephone poles. They're crazy. They're like 200 years old, some of them. So I'm flying amongst those. Getting up into Utah, there's all these incredible red rocks and these cliffs everywhere. It starts to get a lot greener and the creeks aren't all dry like they are down in Arizona. Idaho, I, I didn't realize that they had some of the biggest mountains in the United States. And all along the way, you know, I'm landing, if I can, up on top of these mountains. Were you watching wild animals from the sky on the ground below? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Um, it, it's not uncommon that I'm flying along, kind of looking for a thermal, kind of scratch. We, we call it scratching, where you're kind of close to the train, just trying to feel the air and, and seeing if something's going to take you up high. And so I'm scratching around and then all of a sudden I'll trigger, you know, like maybe one deer. And then all of a sudden there'll be like a stampede of like 30 deer that I'll get spooked and they'll all sort of charge, you know, across the mountainscape, which is great because sometimes that'll actually be what triggers the thermal that you're looking for. But probably the coolest thing is, is the birds, because when you can't find a thermal, you're so, so, so lucky if you end up flying, uh, seeing a bird, because you know, birds of prey, eagles, hawks, vultures, they're all looking for the exact same kind of lift that the butterflies are, the same kind that I am. And so if I see them turning, usually going up because they're so good at it, obviously they do it every day. I usually just go over and poach their lift and then I'm flying with them. Sometimes I can even catch up with them. And the craziest thing, despite the fact that I'm flying this like 22 square meter glider, and they're just this little pipsqueak of a, of a bird by comparison, they're not concerned about me at all. They're not looking at you like you're some weirdo interloper. It's like, you know, what the hell are you doing up here? You know, bipedal human. What, you know, you're not getting any of that? <laughs> no, if anything, it's them aggressing me. Um, you know, if I get too close to a, like a breeding area, for instance, I've had issues where, you know, hawks will come along and, and put a talon, you know, to let me know that I got a little bit too close and I'll have to, you know, <laughs> do some minor, minor repairs. But I remember in Montana that I was just, just like suffering. We call it suffer soaring where the, the wind is so strong that you basically are just soaring the side of a hill like a seagull, you know, on the coast, but you can't actually get above the hill. And then all of a sudden this bird came at me and it started turning and I just 
decided to just follow it. And it took me into one of the best climbs that I that I had in, over the entire expedition. All of a sudden, I went from not being able to figure out what way it was up, stuck on this cliff. I'd been there for half an hour, exactly where I'd launched. And all of a sudden, now I'm 2,000 meters above that hill, all because of this one bird that had come and basically showed me where to turn and how tight to turn and how to stay with that climb. So those are really the best wildlife experiences I get to have paragliding. And what about camping at night on the ground? Are you keeping an eye out for bears and cougars and coyotes and the like? I think that probably what's going on is because I'm not able to bathe for months at a time, (laughs) that they actually think that I'm something that's already dead. Um, (laughs) And that they steer, they steer clear, but I I do take precautions because my food is, is so valuable to me. I can't replace my rations when I'm deep in the wilderness. So I do take extra care and I, I uh, put them in watertight bags, hoping that the smell will stay in. And then, then I hoist them up into trees so that they're difficult for, you know, a bear or something to get at. Where did you complete this glorious journey of 150 days? Canada, eh? (laughs) (laughs) I I actually finished it in a town called Rooseville, Montana, basically right at the, the Canadian border there. In total, it took me 150 days. There were 69 flights, and I traveled 2,835 kilometers uh, in total. About uh, 80% of that was in the air. What kind of feelings do you get when you remember that experience? Does it seem like a dream now or does it, or something else? Yeah, it kind of goes in and out of feeling like a dream. I feel like, I feel like it was a different person. I can say for sure that Usually when you start an expedition and you end, or when I start an expedition and I end an expedition, I can see that the guy who started the expedition was a very different person than the the, the guy who finished the expedition. In this case, I feel like that happened, but that happened like three times. Kind of in line with the multi-generational aspect of the northern migration of the monarch butterfly, where each state kind of taught me a really valuable life lesson that I held on to and it allowed me to be more successful, you know, completing the remainder of the journey in the next state. And then, you know, by the third state, I had the two lessons and then, and, and, and it, it went on and on that way. So I couldn't even really identify the guy I was that I started out as. And when I look back on, you know, who I was in, even in Idaho before Montana, it's also a completely different guy. So I feel really detached from the individual that I'm editing a film about right now. And it does feel like, it does feel like a dream. Absolutely. How are you different, Ben? Well, I mean, I think that I'm a lot more patient. I realize that things are not just not always what they seem, but almost never what they seem. And yeah, just to, to really just surrender to the world around you. In my case, it, it came as that I needed to accept the conditions that I'd been dealt. Sometimes I would be looking forward to a great flight and then it would get blown out and I would be able to check the weather and I would realize that I would be stuck on that mountain for another week. No additional food, no one to talk to if, for instance, Lindsay was down in the valley below and I would just be stuck there. And to kind of go with the flow the way that you might imagine a butterfly is going with the flow, you know, in a strong gust of wind. And realizing that as long as you don't, you know, throw a fuss about it and lose all sorts of energy about it, that you'll get back on track and everything will work out in the end. To me, it seems like the other obvious connection here is the kind of intense contrast in both humans and in these butterflies between extraordinary strength and incredible fragility. Like, you know, you've done this epic journey, but you're always like one really bad day away from crashing into the side of a mountain or something like that. The same with the butterfly. It seems like the most delicate of things, and yet it can do this, it can complete this epic multi-generational journey. How is the monarch butterfly doing at the moment? Well, unfortunately, they're not doing so great. They have, uh, there's been an 80% decline of the eastern monarchs. Those are the ones that migrate from Canada to Mexico. An 80% decline in the last 10 years. By contrast, the ones over in uh, in California that go between the Baja of Mexico and California have seen a 99% decline in that same period of time. So uh, the eastern ones aren't far off. They are facing a ton of challenges. 
really the biggest one is the eradication of milkweed across the United States. This is the only food that their caterpillars can eat, but it's not seen as a very useful plant otherwise. And so um, as monoculture farming uh, takes hold, as, you know, states choose to, uh, you know, chop all of the plants down that grow roadside, uh, even, you know, the infamous border wall that's been erected uh, between Mexico and Canada goes through some of the most important uh, milkweed sanctuaries for monarch butterflies on their journey. So uh, as we've seen a huge uh, reduction in the amount of milkweed, uh, so have we seen their population decrease to uh, truly an endangered level. Uh, the only thing that's keeping them off the endangered species list is just that the Fish and Wildlife Service of the United States has so many other endangered species that they literally just can't fit them onto it. So it's a it's it's a difficult time for the for the butterfly. They depend on this milkweed um, that is is disappearing all over the United States. But um, that I, I realize that you're a show based in Australia, but I'm, I'm sure you have listeners from all around the world, and uh, that if people want to have uh, monarchs flying through their front yard or their backyard, then uh, literally all they have to do is plant their local milkweed seeds and they will flock there and it will help them in their, uh, you know, their, their difficult times right now. And that is something that, you know, that is really the call to action from this project is to get people to be aware of this incredible species and to realize that protecting them is literally just a, ma a matter of planting whatever the local milkweed species is for, for that particular region. There's nothing more delightful than a garden full of butterflies. Ben, I've been astonished hearing this story today. I think I've realised that everything I thought was true about butterflies is wrong, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that knowledge. It's been such a joy speaking with you, and I really wish you all the best in your documentary to come on this epic flight you've done. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. It's been great. Benjamin Jordan is a documentary filmmaker and a long-distance paraglider. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Attention passengers. Hello, Conversations listeners. Jonathan Green here from RN's Return Ticket. On our show, we take you on journeys of the mind. No passport required. We'll chat with some fine guides in destinations you'd love to travel to. Come travel with us here on Return Ticket. You'll find all the episodes on the ABC Listen app.